Welcome to the Gardening Manifesto podcast brought to you in conjunction with Natural England and broadcast by Wiggly Wigglers. On the Wiggly Sofa, I'm Heather Gorringe and I'm joined today by Farmer Phil and Richard. Thank you team for coming. Well, I went off to the Wildlife Gardening Manifesto launch on the 18th of July in London and we're going to hear two interviews today. One with Chris Baines and Stephen Moss, Chris Baines being wildlife gardening guru to the Wiggly Garden, I suppose, and really inspiration with his book, and Stephen Moss being the producer of everything that seems to be to do with wildlife, including everything that seems to be to do with Bill Oddie. And we've also got Sir Martin Doughty, who's chairman of Natural England. But just before we go to them, Rich, you've been the member of Wiggly Wigglers involved in the gardening forum. Can you tell me a little bit about it? <laughs> well, we, we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? We were talking about the manifesto that, uh, that's been written up really with a, as a means of encouraging organisations to encourage homeowners to, to garden for wildlife, be more sensitive and get an idea of how important creating beautiful habitats is in the backyard rather than doing something dull and boring and unnecessary. But it was a while, you know, it was a while ago, it was a couple of years ago that this started. I remember I went down to uh, to a meeting in London at the RHS halls. Which was, was that where you went? No, I went the to Roots and halls. Shoots, okay. which has got a wonderful wildlife garden right in the middle of Lambeth. Oh wow, oh, that's quite nice. But uh, no, I went to this kind of fairly sort of stagnant um, horticultural halls. But there were there were um, some interesting folks there. I remember one of the first couple of times I went down. And so this has taken a couple of years, really, for Natural England, as they are now, English Nature, when it started, to be able to put this manifesto together. Because the problem is, when there are a whole load of different organisations working together, you know, people have got slightly different opinions over what's right and what's wrong, and, you know, the, the politically correct way to address a, an audience through a piece of literature like this. It's a bit tricky. So anyway, but they, they pulled it off, they got it together, and they obviously had the launch that you went down to a week or so ago, a couple of weeks ago. But why has Natural England decided to... It'll, see, it'll be interesting how, how, what, what happens as a consequence. So I can appreciate why, they've, why they did this. The idea being to get lots of organisations together that have an empathy for gardening for wildlife, to get lots of ideas and to have a, a kind of you know, forward-looking approach to encouraging homeowners to create adequate habitat in their garden because of course nature knows no bounds and whilst folks think what good is that 20 meter square patch but in in fact it's incredibly significant if you have lots and lots of 20 meter square patches over an area of a couple of miles that's hugely significant from lots and lots of different species um, so it is very important, and, uh, and we've, we've said before that, in fact, the, here the Wiggly Garden is probably more biodiverse than the 20 acres of barley adjacent to it that fills fill farm. It's an interesting stuff. There's lots of wildlife in the garden. Recently I built a, a wildlife area school grounds not, not a million miles from here, created this most amazing little space with the help of the, the, the school children and, and whatnot. And when I opened the garden with the local MP, I paid mention then to the fact that that space was considerably more significant so far as wildlife was concerned than the, you know, the areas all around it. And it just gives, it a, gives wildlife a chance. You know, they can really get ensconced there and they can spread out from that point. So for English nature, for natural rather than natural England, to come up with this initiative, it's a good thing to do. And I hope that people really push it forward. And there are things like the eco-garden that we do features for on uh, local TV, central news. 
they've got their eco garden really and that's another way of trying to encourage people to create space for wildlife in their garden I mean wildlife comes but you have to give it a chance you know you can't be too tidy you you need to consider some of the some of the richer species some of the the, the species that have provide lots of pollen and nectar you need to think about creating landscaping that can support and sustain hibernating invertebrates reptiles mammals amphibians and the like it's dead easy you know it's a piece of cake but rather than turn over your garden into something that's essentially bland and boring like a patio or some hideous decking or you know a car parking area you can get so much more from creating a a space for wildlife because it stimulates your own intellect as much as anything else do you like our wildlife garden, Phil? I do. And as, well, I, I was the biggest potential cynic, I think. I really thought it wouldn't work. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I will eat large quantities of humble pie. And I think, Rich, your point that these little oases of wildlife habitat, the effect, it certainly here, spreads out at least a field all the way around. Yeah. And that can happen, you know, in towns and, and urban areas that you have little dots of oases and if they're not too far apart they're close enough to interact and you get this effect of a big area of habitat by linking lots of little areas we, we heard from a lady who came here the other day who'd got a tiniest tiniest backyard in the middle of london do you mm. remember rich yeah she said her whole garden had been changed by reading the weekly catalogue really and she one day just got it and hacked it up, hacked the concrete up, and planted this little oasis and put up a bird feeders, had a little pond, and it totally changed the aspect of the house. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, what amazes me is people think, oh, gardens are too much like hard work. The other day I went up to um, Royal Bank Scotland to do some stuff with them. They've, they've got a new base up north, and what they're going to do is disseminate all their environmental initiatives across the other branches in the country. But I went up, and I was having some lunch, and I was rattling with a couple of st- the staff up there, and there's one woman said, oh, you know, I don't get into gardening. I can't be bothered with it. It's too much like hard work. But it's, it's just not hard work. You know, it's beautiful. The other day, Sarah and I went up to our vegetable patch. I mean, it's an ideal time for families to get together to rattle about things that you might not otherwise have the chance to do you could be thoroughly off with this rain that we're having oh, we'll you go up in the to, garden we'll have to send cleanses that. your soul yeah i mean it just utterly just, you know, beeped off absolutely beeped off it is but it but a moment in the garden especially you know growing vegetables and things like that so rewarding and i can wax lyrical about it but really, if for folks to try it, then it just you know the, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah, but you see, I think also there's space for people that don't want a garden. So for me, I don't get that joy. I don't get joy from going and digging those vegetables. You know, I, I just yeah, don't. You get but joy, I, yeah, but that's because you you can you've got a whole load of minions to pick them for you. <laughs> yeah, but what I'm saying is that doesn't necessarily have to happen in your wildlife garden. Yeah. You can have a moment in time, a weekend of inspiration, yeah. and then you really can set back from it and say, I don't need to maintain it all the time. No. So it's not just for people that want to spend oh, well, it's time not, in absolutely. it. They're looking at it, yeah. now I get joy out of that. Totally. Yeah. I know well, the reason I'm that lazy. you don't go... No, I don't think you're lazy at all. I think now, I know the reasons why you don't go into your garden. A, because you do have millions to do it for you, <laughs> but it's because you're doing all these, other, all these other things, which takes us along with lots of other different initiatives, and that's, that's why you don't get involved in the garden as much as possibly you might. OK, listen. I went to London on the 18th of July, and Joan Ruddock... The Minister of Biodiversity was due to open the event, but she was being whipped or something really? in the House, <laughs> Houses of Commons. Really? It was something like a third party line whip. A three line whip. 
So she couldn't come. So her um, chappy did it. But this is what she would have said right. had she gone. Okay. The manifesto will help improve gardening advice to encourage people to manage gardens in a way that benefits wildlife. This is essential because as our climate changes, the network of gardens could help wildlife to adapt and migrate throughout the country. It's inspiring to see leading wildlife and horticultural organisations working together to highlight the importance of gardens for both wildlife and for people's health and well-being. And there was an awful lot of talk about the human element. Hmm. Let's go in here from Chris Baines, Stephen Moss and then Sir Martin Doughty. <laughs> right, I've got two heavyweights here, not in that sense, but in the sense of wildlife gardening. I've got Stephen Moss and I've got Chris Baines. Thank you so much for having a quick word with me about this event. Go, go first to Stephen. Stephen, what, what do you think that this could actually achieve for wildlife gardening? I mean, obviously, wildlife gardening has to come, as it were, from the grassroots. It has to be people who are enthused about it, but they need a bit of guidance. And the great thing here is you've got all all the really key conservation organisations, all the key people from government, Natural England, and individual experts on, on wildlife gardening, all pulling together and all agreeing that here's the manifesto. And I think what's great about it is that it's not watered down. It is good, strong stuff. And Chris, it must be quite a proud day for you because, as you know, you inspired our wildlife garden with your book, and now you've seen all that complete sea change in attitudes to gardening. Yeah. It is extraordinary. I mean, it's, I, I was saying to somebody earlier on, it's 40 years in my case I've been waiting. I was studying horticulture 40 years ago, and at that st- I spent three years being taught how to kill everything, really. Horticulture in the 60s was about pesticides, and wildlife in gardens then was either a pest or a disease or a weed. That was it. Yeah. And then 30 years ago, I, may, I, I did a, an original ground force, really, on Gardener's World and created something called a rich habitat garden, and Peter Seabrook was presenting Gardener's World and it took him about 10 years before he spoke to me again because he was so appalled that <laughs> Gardener's World had had this weird guide <laughs> suggesting people should plant weeds and put nest boxes up. And then 20 years ago, uh, just over, I made the very first wildlife garden at, at Chelsea Flower Show and the RHS were so confused by it that on my medal it says to Chris Baines for a wildfire garden. <laughs> so one way or another, <laughs> it's been a kind of misunderstood period of 40 years. Uh, but that's now, you, I mean, it's, misfired. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's quite funny. strangely apt, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Yeah. Spread like wildfire. Well, and yeah. they, got, they got back to me, and when I explained that it was, it was wrong, they said, "Oh, put, send it back, send it back." I said, "No, I think I'd rather hang on to it. Yeah. It's much more valuable to me with the spelling mistake." Yeah. And then true, seven right? or eight years ago, Stephen and I worked yes. together with yeah. Charlie Dimmock on Charlie's Wildlife Gardens, and that was, in a way, I think for me a really important turning point because suddenly this was real mainstream this was popularity this was actually you know eight o'clock on a friday night kind of stuff instead of eleven thirty on a sunday night which is where i'd always been deposited and now here we are you know 40 years down the line and all the big boys are saying yeah this is serious stuff this matters this is important so it's a it's a great moment really a great moment fantastic and for the future uh, what about children? Um, how are we going to engage them? 
Well, we have to allow them to go out and explore nature for themselves without always having to have an interactive experience. It doesn't always have to be immediate and it doesn't always have to be interactive. And actually, holding an insect or holding a frog or seeing a butterfly is an incredible experience for children. And they naturally want to pick flowers and blow dandelion clocks. I have two teenage children who have no interest in wildlife because I didn't encourage it, and three little ones who do. And I'm trying to push them and I'm trying to actually hold back and let the children go out and the garden is the perfect place to do that because it's safe there's an very interesting as well how modest people's kind of expectations are and how little it takes to really inspire people i'm very involved with the wildfowl and wetlands trust and uh, there was a a wonderful week for kids in northern ireland in their center on strangford loch last year lots of kids through all kinds of extremely exciting things to do snorkeling and all kinds of stuff to engage with wildlife and at the end of the week they had a questionnaire of what the children had most remembered and most found really inspired them and well over 95 percent of them top of the list was having a duck feeding out of their hand so modest you know and you can do that in any park and so what we hope certainly is that the park is the next big step you know that the wildlife in your garden is partly down to how you garden it's very much about what your neighborhood's like and so there's a real need now to actually say well it works I mean it works extraordinarily well you dig a pond you fill it with water and you know the the pond skaters are there within five minutes wouldn't it be wonderful if we now really started to look at our parks and our public open spaces and our school grounds and the new housing areas that have been developed so that it becomes one massive landscape where people get that kind of daily dose of nature when they walk into the shops or you know just sitting out in the sun at lunchtime now you two don't you forget this because I know there's a bit of townism going on here don't forget come to the farms too there's a lot of farmers out there that are actually really keen on conservation and environmentalism and I think with things like leaf and the organic and the soil association it's worth bringing them all together because our gardens aren't any more natural than our farm really no they're not I mean the other thing is that rural I think people with rural gardens in rural villages actually are the people with the least access to the wider landscape I'm always meeting people who teach in rural schools who say, well, you know, our kids have got nowhere to go beyond the village boundary. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I live in the middle of Wolverhampton. You can walk you can walk all the way to Liverpool along the canal towpath from there. You know, it's yeah. a, there's a fantastic network of urban corridors and footpaths and buses to jump off and on. So actually rural communities, I think, have become in the last 50 years more deprived of contact with nature than most so you're quite right the wider the hope is swinging back isn't yeah. it because certainly where I live in I've moved to Somerset recently and it is being far more sympathetically the peat digging they've done is now being turned into nature reserves yeah. there are finally places for, for kids to go and the farmers themselves I think are being encouraged now finally not to just pursue high yields and to do something that helps wildlife and certain farmers have always done that and been penalised for it and at least now they're getting something back we're here kind of under the patronage of uh, natural England I mean that's a really significant change to bring together English nature the nature conservation specialists with the countryside agency the access to the countryside specialists and the rural development agency the people with the conservation money for farmers to bring them all under one umbrella in order to deliver a landscape that is alive and is accessible I mean that's exactly what we need Absolutely. Thank you very much 
I'm Martin Doughty, Chair of Natural England. Before that, I chaired English Nature. And I understand that the first thoughts about this were about 30 years ago, when some pioneering people in the Nature Conservancy Council, which predated English Nature, recognised that gardens potentially were a huge wildlife haven and that we ought to do something about it. And we've been working on it, I guess, slowly, but perhaps in the last five or ten years, much more urgently, recognising that, as say, birds like the song thrush have been disappearing from the countryside, that maybe gardens were a way that, that they could be saved. And now, of course, we know all sorts of other things, the benefits of, uh, in terms of our well-being, our health and everything else. So it's people as well as wildlife, and gardens are an integral part of that. Yeah, because I think wildlife gardening has tended to have a bit of a bashing mm. from people that think that what it's going to mean for you is that mm. you're going to be uh, stung by wasps, yes. you're not going to have a pleasant environment, and it's not for the human. And yet your talk was all about how it mm. is for us as people. It is. And I guess there was a generation of gardeners that are now mainly not on radio and television who were people who sprayed a lot and used pesticides and herbicides and didn't think much about the wildlife and I think they've been replaced largely now by much more sensitive gardeners and it, you know you don't get you don't no more likely to get stung by a wasp in a wildlife in the garden <laughs> I've got I've got virtually every mammal you would think of coming through not, not a particularly big garden Lots of voles, lots of foxes coming through at times. I had a badger through recently. It's not all absolutely plain sailing. I had a very aggressive male mole that was forever putting molehills in places I didn't want them. He was after your worms, yeah, young was, man. Yeah, he was, absolutely, he was, yes. That's what, which shows that the garden was very, very good in organic terms. But So you do get, you do get little problems like that, but uh, by and large it's great fun and it's got to be healthy for you in all sorts of ways, not just the food, but the actual well-being that it gives you. So who have you managed to bring together today? I mean, I don't want the full list because I think well, there's 30, lots, but... Lots of nature organisations, lots of gardening organisations. I think what I'd like to work on is getting some more commercial interests. I'd like to see a big garden centre chain that not simply had things on the shelf that were wildlife friendly, but actually positively advertised them and campaigned on behalf of wildlife gardening. Now, I know they'll look at their commercial interests, but... Uh, I think that's something that uh, would be very good to see. You've got organisations like the National Trust who are already doing hugely good work in the way that they run their gardens. They don't just peat anymore, that sort of thing. And they've got um, worm composting they toilets have, yes, too. Yes, they've got, they've got, they're right at the forefront. And uh, it would be nice to get a commercial uh, garden centre outfit where lots of gardeners go who perhaps don't get the messages that, that we've got here today just to get some more messages from the sort of places they would normally go to. Mm. Of course, I hope they don't in a way, because I'm from Wiggly Wigglers and we're a mail order company, but in, on the other hand, there's plenty to go at, isn't there? Uh, I should think so, yeah. <laughs> I don't think you'll have any problems, yeah. I don't yeah. either. The more that get converted, the more, the more business you'll get. I think you're right. Just to tell me briefly about your own garden and how this method has changed what you do in your garden on a practical basis. Most gardeners would tell you that slugs and snails are their biggest problem. I will admit to you that I do use a few slug pellets only inside frames so that no wild creatures can get to them. But outside of the frames, I don't use them. 
and they're just little seedlings like lettuces because the slugs can destroy a whole frame full in a night if I don't take some steps. But I think I think I'm almost getting to the stage of being confident enough to phase that out as well. So I don't use any. I'm, I mean, I'm absolutely organic other than that. And I have a grass-covered area, but I don't call it a lawn because it's got all sorts of wildflowers and indeed other things like fritillaries in that I planted that love coming up in the grass. So my garden's just it's quite eccentric, really, but it's lovely. And I've got a pond with that every spring will have 20, 30 mating frogs, and people come from, to my pond for frog spawn, take it away. And there's a very healthy colony of palmate newts in there as well, which is lovely to go and see. So my wife and I, on a, on a warm, sunny evening, we'll go out firstly with the bat detector yeah. and, pick, and find out what's flying above, and then we'll get a torch onto the top of the pond and, and all the palmate newts will sl- scurry away, which is what they do when you light them up. Fantastic. We've yeah. got great crested in ours. Great stuff. They're wow. lovely. Ooh, well, you've, 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 you've uh, really hit, one hit up the button. You've hit the button, yeah. yeah. Well done. <laughs> Tell me, looking ahead, future, five years, ten years, what do you hope will be achieved by this manifesto? I hope that we will have many, many more people out there doing wildlife gardening and demanding of suppliers, uh, you, you're there already, but lots of other suppliers, that, that they, they get wildlife-friendly methods and, and equipment and chemicals and whatever that they use in the garden. I, I just think it, it is so rewarding. It may have at one point been regarded as quirky a few years ago. I think it's now mainstream and it is incredibly rewarding. And of course, lots of these people who may be still using pesticides and herbicides are also feeding the birds. Yeah. And if they think about it, the two aren't quite compatible. And those birds they love, you know. So let's, let's think about what do the birds need. They need they need feed. They probably need at times insects. And uh, you're, you're not going to get insects if you throw pesticides all around. You will get insects. So if you have a pile of old in a corner of the garden that, uh, that's creating an ideal habitat. You mentioned that, um, I think, 22 Hyde Parks yes. have actually gone within London. They've been paved over. Front gardens. Front gardens uh, that have been lost, paved over, basically to bring cars in. Yeah. And individuals would say, I'd prefer to have my car there than on the road. But collectively, that is a huge issue, isn't it? Yeah. So all that garden biodiversity potential and flood risk from paving over. Yeah. So the more yeah. you pave, the more flood, more Storm flooding damage. we'll get. And yeah. that's a topical issue at the moment. Um, and it is, yeah, in... in, in we know 22 Hyde Parks just in London from front gardens. I'd love to see. I've been walking down here today, coming from Herefordshire. Yeah. I haven't walked all the way, but the way, no, no. But from the tube station, yeah. and it's fascinating because the gar- the front gardens that have been paved over, that people have just taken and just obliterated mm. all the gardens, mm. look awful. And yet, there's many gardens that have as much as three spaces there, but it's, it's full of biodiversity. So it's not necessarily that you can't park your car and have biodiversity as far as I can see no you can in many cases have both can't you yeah and uh, the planners need to look at that I think the highway engineers often like to get cars off the road if they if they can safely get on and off the road they prefer them to park off the road rather than on the road and that I think is a problem as well and we need to look at these things in the round the biodiversity loss the flood the increased flood risk and uh, let's get some sensible policies Thank you very much. And the strawberries at Roots and Shoots are very, very They're wonderful. tasty. They're wonderful, Heather. Yeah, go and get some more. Thank you very much. All the best. 
Well, there we are. What a great day, what a great idea. And Rich, I think you've done great to be part of it. Oh, thanks very much. I do. You're good. I know, it's been quite a heavy... You're right. I am. Well, only one of two commercial organisations involved in the Gardening Manifesto. Hopefully, loads more will join. But it's been quite a heavy podcast this week, you know, quite serious, you know. So I thought, dear Natural England listeners, that you should know that usually our podcast is a little bit more funky. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, here is... Should that encourage people to listen? Do you think? I don't know. No, I don't know either. Well, we shall see. Well, anyway, if you want to tune in, you must go to Wiggly Wigglers and click on the podcast link and you'll be able to download all sorts of other podcasts. Give us a brief idea of your favourite, Phil. Well, my favourite still has got to be the Hedgerow Row. I just think it it epitomises the sorts of things that Rich and I get up to. And the discussion goes on. The Hedgerow Row. So that was, do we cut our hedges once a year or once every three years? More or less, yeah. Rich, your favourite? I think... Possibly. I'm just thinking about the people that I've interviewed most. One of the most humbling experiences is when I spoke to Dr Usamani at the EM conference I went to in Bavaria and Lake Shemsey. What a wonderful woman. Fantastic woman. And I, I, you know, we had some great experiences. I, uh, you know, I've spoken to Claire Short when we, we borrowed uh, uh, BBC Hero from Worcester's offices <laughs> to uh, chat with Claire. And of course she came out, didn't she? And she came and visited you and Phil, which is great because I like more socialists on these grounds, the better. And... Uh, <laughs> There you go. And Tim Smith, Tim, I mean, great bloke, you know, very confident. It's great to be able to chat to different people and get their perspectives on life and especially their perspectives on, on how, how we behave, natural history, natural gardening, things like that. Highlight for me has to be interviewing Anita Roddick. Has to be that. Mm. But if you want a taste of country life, maybe you're a bit busy, perhaps you're commuting in London on that awful tube and you don't know what colour the stuff that comes out of your nose really is, I can assure you it's supposed to be green. If you go on the, <laughs> if you go on the tube, it's black. How frightening is that? Then you need to tune in to Wiggly Wigglers every week. And just to give you the briefest idea of what other people say, the latest review on iTunes is my favourite. This is what it says. Stand, a, stand by your beds, Rich. It's not good for you and me. <laughs> uh, five stars, and it's by Gedi, G-E-D-E-Y-E. And it says, just wanted to add my rating to the numbers. I look forward to playing the podcast on my way home from work every Monday. wonder if he's on the tube. Lots of giggles and discussions, sometimes heated, about topics that more people should be aware of. It's already taught me a lot including that farmers' wives can sound sexy (laughs) and confirmation that farmers are curmudgeonly old buggers. Bollocks. That's what I've got to say to that. (laughs) Curmudgeonly old buggers. (laughs) So if you'd like to tune in to more Wiggly podcasts, please go to www.wigglywigglers.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And also, you must join our Facebook group, 
what fun we're having on our Facebook group. It is absolutely wonderful. You know, um, Simon Sherlock got, uh, asked me the other day about joining Facebook. I think you must have tried to encourage him to encourage me to join Facebook. Really? <laughs> it is there. It's there. And I, it's, it's something that I'm going to do. I'm going to do it. Uh, but, uh, That'll I'm be good, Rich. We could encourage you to use your computer to more. That's tomorrow or something. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow, maybe. Anyway, yeah, from the good. weekly sofa in Lower Blakemere Farm, Herefordshire, on a very wet day, we wish everyone luck with the Gardening Manifesto. What an amazing opportunity to change the way Britain gardens. Bye from me. Bye from me. And it's bye from me. And the manifesto includes top tips for wildlife like creating a pond, brightening up the garden with flowers that provide pollen and nectar for bees, butterflies and insects all year round, leaving a pile of dead wood, building a compost heap, providing water and food for birds, relaxing, gardening in a sustainable way to protect wildlife. And it says that contact with the natural environment improves children's mental and physical health and self-discipline and they're going to be thinner. And they like playing in a green environment, not on hard tarmac. And it'll fix obesity. There we are. There you are. Inf- the cure for all ails. Sorted. That would be great, Richard, if only your microphone was on.